Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. guest today on One for the Road started her career as a therapist and she has worked with several thousands of people including royalty, rock stars, actors and Olympic athletes. She has also written several self-help books and she is now the founder of the incredible award-winning program Rapid Transformational Therapy. So it gives me incredible pleasure to introduce to you today the wonderful Marissa Peer. So, good afternoon, Marissa, and I feel truly honoured that you've agreed to join me on my podcast, One for the Road. How are you today? You're in the UK today, aren't you? Yes, I'm in London getting ready for my daughter's wedding. It's all very exciting. And just about to go to Amsterdam to teach a school too, so it's very exciting. Well, you're a busy lady, and that's why I feel very lucky that you're here today. Um, And I wanted to start off by talking about how important mindset is when it comes to stopping addiction, especially in my case, alcohol, because my drinking spiraled out of control where I was drinking up to a litre of vodka a day for 10 years, and then I was drinking two to three bottles of wine a day, beers, And I'm at an age now that really it would be quite easy for me to say, I've been drinking 40 years, it's too late, I'm never going to change. And the tools that people offered me to stop drinking weren't quite enough. So I realised that I needed to change my mindset. And Mm. it's an area that you're absolutely fantastic in. So it would be great for you to cover what you can tell the listeners on this. You know, I've worked with thousands and thousands of addicts over the years, mostly alcoholics, but also drug addicts, um, gambling addicts, people who are addicted to sex and shopping and hoarding. And I found they all have one thing in common, and it's this. I've never met an addict in my entire life who believed they were enough. And I think when you start from that place of lack, I'm not enough, then it almost makes sense you need more, more drink, more drugs, more sex, more food. And, you know, I I think addicts are actually often very, very fragile creatures. And we give them a lot of stick and go, you just stop drinking, you're ruining everyone's lives. When I work with addicts, I never say what's wrong with you. I tend to say what happened to you. And then I like to ask them a very interesting question. What do you get from the addiction? What do you mean? Well, it must give you something because you keep going back. Well, now you mention it. It's my friend. I can always turn to alcohol. It never lets me down. It gives me confidence. It gives me courage to walk in a room or it allows me to escape from my problems. So often when I ask them what's good about it, what are you getting from it? Better say what's good, but they'll say, well, allows me to escape. It gives me a form of comfort. It gives me a form of confidence or allows me to opt out. No one expects anything of me because I'm an alcoholic. So I've kind of got a 
uh, what do we call an escape card. And I think when you look at what do you get from it and then show people, look, you can get all of those things without alcohol. It's better than just saying, let's just put you in rehab and take it all away because often it's not just the alcoholism. It's what I call what lies beneath the feeling of unworthiness, the feeling of not enoughness, the feeling of not deserving anything, the feeling of self-destruct and self-sabotage. You've got to work on those too. Because I call alcohol a presenting room. Here I am, and I'm, I'm, I've got an addiction. But there's so much more beneath that you have to treat. And I think until we start doing that, we're only ever going to treat the surface. And like you said, you offered many things. I've had clients who've been in rehab eight times. One came out. She went straight to a pub, had a drink, got run over by a bus. And it still didn't stop her drinking. And I've had many times. I've been in rehab so many times. My family have paid. My company have paid. I just can't stop. And it's until you fix what is underneath the presenting issue, you'll never have the great success. But if you fix what's underneath, you can have amazing success and it's permanent. And it isn't even hard work. That's what I found, Marissa. I had to do a bit of time in the beginning to stop drinking. So I had to tackle the cravings and the triggers and the periods of time that I, I was, I had the voice in my head where it's like, come on, you can just have one. You'll be able to moderate. So I found like dealing with those issues underneath, I always equate it to the iceberg where you've got the third above the water and the two thirds in the water that you need to get down underneath. But that takes a bit of time, doesn't it? So Ooh. And for me, it went right back into childhood, you know, and it was deep stuff that was buried deep in in the memory bank. So it made me realize that actually I I didn't feel enough for my whole of my drinking career. So I became a people pleaser. I become these false characters where I would shapeshift around different individuals in the pub so they would like me more and that. And I just wasn't living my true life. And when I stopped drinking, I realized I I had such a low self-respect for myself, no self-esteem, and I couldn't even look in the mirror. So how does someone start? Well, I think, you know, you're absolutely correct. Most people do start. that The issues that set them off start very young. No one says, hey, I've got a great life. It's all amazing. I've got a wonderful partner, good job lovely home. I think I'll drink a litre of vodka today to escape. So what are you escaping from? What is making you so low that you need to be high? What do you need to cocoon yourself and insulate yourself? And it's no point saying, why do you do that? Because, you know, we're coming from a problem that's highly emotional. Most problems are emotional. All addictions are emotional. And here's the rule. When you're dealing with the emotion, Logic won't help. In a battle of logic and emotion, emotion always, always, always wins. So we have to go into the emotion and look at what happened when you began to drink. And, and that's not hard. Sometimes it is. I use hypnosis because it's so fast. If you say, let's go back to why you began to drink, straight away it comes up. And in my new book, Tell Yourself a Better Lie, I did a case with a guy called Ryan who was a terrible alcoholic in very abusive relationships and had other addictions too. And it all went back to his father rejecting him because he was gay, being horrified that he was gay and saying, don't even come to my funeral, which made him feel very worthless. But of course, that's what we come up with. What do you do with that? Well, what you do with it is look at it again. 
a little boy feels his father hates him because he's gay. And he also mentioned a scene where he really liked this boy at school and he saw him kissing a girl and he felt completely left out. But then, you know, when we're a child, we look at the world with a lifespan. I've been on the planet for eight years. How can I make these conclusions at eight? It's like you're looking at the world with glasses on, with a filter. As a adult, you look again and go, you know, actually, it wasn't about me. My dad was inadequate. My dad felt worthless. And actually, I have a great relationship with my dad now. That boy that kissed a girl, he wasn't right for me anyway. So it's going back, and the whole session is really a massive reframe. Give an example. I worked with someone who's a chronic alcoholic who never saw his dad. But on his 18th birthday, his dad turned up, took him to the pub, got him completely drunk and said, you're a man now, and began to drink with him every weekend with all his friends. And he said, you know, I felt so bonded. My dad was never there, but with drink, he kind of loved me and was a real happy drunk and would tell me how great he was. And then he died, and I still went to the pub every weekend, and I never realized I was trying to keep that memory going. I had 18 years when I never saw him, two years where I did. And in going to the pub and drinking, I was trying to still bond with my dad, who's dead. But, of course, now this man is 40. He realized that, you know what? I thought my dad loved me through drink, but that was just how my dad loosened up. He was an alcoholic. And I don't need drink to be loved. I don't need drink to connect. I don't need drink to feel significant. But I really believed I did because that's a message I got over and over again as a young man. And so it's often let's unpick the message like a ball of felted woolen where you unpick it, you unravel it, you make sense, but then you have to change it. What I do always is a three-step process. Let's become like a detective and find out why, how, when, where did you start to drink? And now we've found out, let's start to extract those beliefs, but we've also got to put in new ones, got to be all three, find out when, remove that belief, but then you must put in a new one. You're smart, you matter, you can speak. Of course, you can have a drink. I mean, a lot of alcoholics think they can never drink, and I get that. And others say, you know, I can, I can just have a glass of wine at a birthday. But many of them say, no, I don't ever want to drink again. But then you've got to make them believe that they love not drinking, that not drinking is amazing and gives them as much as alcohol ever did. Because I guess we're saying, look, you know, have a drink. It's fun. Why are you not drinking? You're missing out. This lovely Merlot, surely you want some. See, the last bit is getting people to actually love not drinking so much. They don't have to sit at home and go, I can't go to the pub. They can go to the pub go to the bar, go to an event, because the opposite of love is not hate. It's actually complete and utter indifference. When you can be indifferent to alcohol or cakes or drugs or gambling, then you are really, really winning. I love that. I really love that. That's powerful, actually. And, yeah, I mean, there's an acronym in our community that's FOMO, the fear of missing out, and how we frame that is, oh, my God, as you just said, like they're having a cold beer on a summer's day and or I'm on holiday, it's my birthday, reward, reward. But there's also the joy of missing out. It's like I can get up early in the morning and see the sun come up and I can feel healthy and make decent food choices. So it's how you reframe it in your mind, isn't it? Yeah. And most alcoholics will tell you, you know, I pretend I love drinking. A lot of alcoholics cry when they're drunk. A lot of alcoholics say, I never want my kids to drink. It's a bit like smoking. I love smoking, but I don't want my kids to smoke. I smoke to relax and focus, but I never say my, to my kids, hey, when you're taking your exam, you should have a cigarette because it really helps you focus. 
and it makes you fit in. So we lie to ourselves. I need it. It gives me something I'm missing out. Like you say, people have FOMO, but I have DOMO, like the absolute delight of missing out. I, I never want to go to like red carpet events. In fact, I was invited to one last month at the Super Bowl, and I thought, you know what, I just can't be bothered to go. Do I really want to get to somewhere? I didn't want to do it at all, so I stayed in and watched TV, and it was like, oh, this is so much nicer. I think that thing about I'm missing out means that you feel incomplete, which is very normal. I need to go out and be with people because I'm getting my validation from them. But could I stay in, take my dog, make a lovely dinner and be on my own? Not all the time and feel really happy. Yeah, you really can. And so it's it's our belief. I've got to find my other half. I've got to be around people. I've got to be out there living it up, when actually some of our best moments are just wake up, you say, waking up, thinking, wow, I can just sit and put the fire on and read the paper. How lovely. I can do whatever I want today. So I don't have a hangover. You know, I, I remember a friend of mine who would drink and then spend the whole weekend in bed. It's like, but the price you're paying for drinking, you go out on a Friday night and you're still wasted on a Monday morning. That's such a price. And by the way, you could have flown to Italy for the weekend the amount of money you're spending on drink and drugs, you could have gone away for the whole weekend. Instead, you put all that down your throat and then spent three days in bed and, and got fired from your job. For, for what? But, of course, when you're in it, you can't see that because that's the logic. When you're in it, you could only see, I need to feel somewhat better than I feel. An addiction is classified as anything that takes you away from a bad feeling really fast. Even if it eventually gives you another bad feeling, it's not logical. It's it's a behavior we do because we're in pain and we're hurting. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, so can you tell us about uh, RTT? Yeah. I mean, I created RTT because I was always amazed that people would turn up at the doctors or indeed accident emergency or a chiropractor and they would offer me to, well, I broke my arm and I went to, a&E and they fixed it immediately. I am one of my, I cracked a tooth one and they fixed it straight away. But in therapy, it's a strange thing that says, bring me your pain, but I'm not going to fix it straight away. I'm going to talk about it and work through it and get to know you and build a relationship with you. And then I get rid of your pain because most of your pain is emotional. But emotional pain hurts just as much as physical pain, sometimes more. You can take a pill if you have a chronic headache. Take a painkiller if you've broken your leg, but emotional pain, you can't really take a pill for that. And I never understood why therapy said, well, I can't fix your pain today or even tomorrow, even next week, but over time I can. And most of my clients were in so much pain. They didn't even have a week or a month. Some of them were right on the edge because they were so full of self-hatred and a belief that they were worthless. And I thought, well, I can fix their pain now by just going back and going, look, you're telling yourself, like, my father didn't love me. Your father was an idiot. He couldn't love anyone. He didn't love himself. That's got nothing to do with you. I should have been a boy. Well, but you're a girl and you're meant to be. I should have been a girl, but I was a boy. And so it's always unpicking because what happens with a child is when the parent appears not to love them, they don't stop loving the parent. They immediately stop loving themselves. And one of my clients said, you know, I was with my mother in the street in Ireland and my father's friend came up and he said, your husband will never be a man because you haven't given him sons and this is your fifth daughter. You should be ashamed of yourself. 
she didn't know, excuse me, actually men provide the sex of the child, not the mother. So how can I be ashamed of myself? I can only produce one chromosome. But she went through her life thinking, wow, my father's not a man because I wasn't a boy. It's all my fault. I disappoint everybody. And you look at that with the eyes of a child and all of think is, wow, I'm not enough. And I've got this scene to back up the proof that I'm not enough. So as an adult, we look at the scene and go, look, this happened. I wish it hadn't. But it's not true. It's just how it felt. Your father loved you. He didn't have a son. We don't know why. But it wasn't your job to be his son. And when you can take away the guilt, the shame, the blame, which you know is so rife in, in alcoholics, they feel guilty. They feel full of shame. Full of, I could have, should have, would have been somebody better than I am. I mean, even George Best with all that talent and all that male beauty always felt inadequate. Even Amy Winehouse, with all of that talent, wrote songs like, I told you I was trouble. You know I'm no good. Love is a losing game. Even Whitney Houston and George Michael and so many people with such talent have this belief, I'm really not good enough. And if you knew me, you'd be disappointed. And that's the bit you got to work with. Why do you believe that? Who told you that? What did they know? And even if they believed it to be true, it's not true. It was never true. It's certainly not true now. So it's unpicking the limiting beliefs, the blocking thoughts that cause people that are fragile to be even more fragile and removing them completely. I mean, I was just listening to Adele's album where she's crying and singing about I drink wine. And it was so interesting because that girl is so talented, so beautiful and has everything. But you can see there's still in her that little something of I could disappoint you all. And I think often when people like that become famous, it doesn't stop them. It makes them worse. It's like now, before I had to please my partner, my kid, my mom now, I've got to please all my fans. And no wonder she canceled her event at the very last minute because that pressure to be perfect is really hard. I mean, most alcoholics just have that at home. But imagine if you become famous and it's there every minute of every day. How do you deal with that? So many good points there. And how how do people access RTT then? Oh, I went right off target, didn't I? I was talking about why I created it. So I created a therapy that was fast. I, I began to work with my clients and get really fast results, sometimes in one session, sometimes in two. And then I started to train people all over. There's only one of me. And my great friend, Wayne Dyer, said, never die with your music still inside you. That was such a wake-up call for me. So I created my training, and I've trained so far 13,000 therapists and coaches. And they're all over the world. And you can go to rtt.com and either find someone to work with you, or indeed you might think, hey, Marissa, I'd love to do what you do. Sounds amazing. It is because I have so much freedom. I work my own hours. I set my own fees. I was a single parent. It really was the best job in the world. But if you want to find out how to become an RTT therapist or indeed work with one, rtt.com is a place to go. Fabulous. And also, I believe you've developed a stop drinking course as well. Yeah, we have a lot of mini courses. People don't buy courses, they buy results. And I've worked very successfully to stop them drinking. And I've had a few doctors say, you know, you can't stop people drinking because they'll have a terrible reaction. I've had people who've stopped drinking overnight and said, you know, it's so weird. It's like I never drank. I've actually forgotten about drinking. 
I've had, worked with a lot of people, sports stars, darts players, all kinds of people who believe they couldn't perform without drinking. So I have an, an audio that really reprograms your mind to become indifferent to drinking because all addictions start in the mind. The mind says, I need that. I must have that. I can't function without that. But the great thing about the mind is you kind of have this bio figure. First of all, the mind says, actually, you know what? You're great without it. So the mind starts to send different signals to the body going, this is great. You're doing great. But it also interrupts the signals coming from the body to the mind. So they're saying, oh, I'm feeling terrible. I need to drink. You know, I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling dehydrated. I'm feeling a little stressed here. So it's this wonderful thing where the mind is sending different signals to the body. You're doing great. Alcohol is not your friend. If it could give you anything, it would have given it to you. I mean, after 30 years, come on, if it could change your life, wouldn't it have done it by now? But it also interrupts the signals coming back. So the thing like, I need a drink, I'm going out, is you know what, you're going to go out and be amazing. And you did that for 30 years, you just didn't, you're done with it, you're over it, this is amazing. And I find with any addiction, smoking, drinking, gambling, drugs, getting the mind to believe you don't need it is amazing. And after all, when my grandmother went to the hospital and had a hip operation on my mother, they didn't come out going, hey, I'm, I'm an opium addict now, where's the opium? They both were given high doses of opium when they had their hip replaced. And yet they didn't come out saying, I'm an addict. Somebody gave me drugs for 10 days straight, and now I've got to go and score more. And why is that, that people can go into hospital and have really high doses of opiates but not come out addicted? Because they don't believe they're addicted. Because I had one hit of her and that was it. I became an addict immediately. I drank and instantly it felt so good that I needed more and more. And one was never enough. And I just kept going because it made me feel good. But lots of people take um, anesthetics to make them feel good, but they don't become addicted. What is that all about? It's really about the person. And I find addicts have, they're often very creative people. Often we see that with artists and painters and Because they're creative, they're highly receptive to suggestions. I need another one. I can't get enough. But if you are that receptive to suggestions, that's a great gift. Even if it's another suggestion, you know what? I just don't need that anymore. It no longer gives me what I thought it gave me. I'm actually happy. I've never met an alcoholic who says, I wish I could go back and drink. Most of them say, you know, it was fun for a while, but the last 10 years, what a waste. If I could go back, I'd never do it again. I'd maybe have a beer or a glass of wine, but I'd never get into that. I can't stop drinking because it was such a false promise. And I'm sure you can talk more about the false promise you get from believing that alcohol takes away your pain because all you do is swap the pain. I drink to cope with the pain of being alone. You know, I worked with this amazing man many years ago who came in and said, you know, I'm the terrible alcoholic. I mean, I drink so much. I passed out in the street. I have accidents all the time. And I've never been married because after what woman would put up with this? What woman would want to be with somebody like me? But when we unpicked it all, actually, he felt so unlovable. His parents were awful to him. He felt so unworthy that he drank because he could say, well, I don't have a wife because look at me, I'm an alcoholic. But the real pain was I can't find love. And so I drink to numb the pain. And when we stopped him drinking, he was married to his, I went to his wedding. He got married at 65 to someone who was 62. And it was just the loveliest thing. 
because his real problem was he believed he was unlovable and couldn't find love and just sat at home with alcohol. And when we stripped that away, which wasn't hard, and he's able to tell himself something else, well, there is someone that could love you. My granny says every pan has a lid. And I say, you know, you're someone's pan and someone is your lid. And you're perfect for someone. And I love the fact he didn't go for some 30-year-old because he was very wealthy. He found a woman almost his age and they're still together. But it wasn't the drinking. It was this feeling that I'm not lovable, what I call the unspeakable truth that we use drink to hide, to mask. So if you had an unspeakable truth when you were drinking, what would it have been? What a great question. Certainly for me, it, it was um, my mum left when I was 14 mm-hmm. uh, and she left me a letter. She didn't say goodbye uh, and I didn't see her for a year. And then briefly after that, my dad met someone else uh, and I felt completely rejected and abandoned. Oh, and I masked that over straight away by uh, drinking with some schoolmates up the shops where the adults were buying us beer out the off-license. And it worked for me because it took that pain away. And then I mm. buried it deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. Uh, and then it manifested. The more I was drinking, the more it got buried. And then I, the crutch I used alcohol for were all the byproducts of my insecurities from that era you know so it was getting more and more and more complicated but when I stopped I kind of stripped it back as you've just said and I realized that it started from somewhere yeah being abandoned by your mother and you know when you're 14 there's no way you can make sense of that because the reality is my mother left me for someone else therefore she likes that someone else more than me therefore I'm not enough whichever way you cut it when you're a parent leaves you as a child, you can't feel anything except not enough because you can't work out why they would, even when a parent dies, they think, well, if they loved you, they wouldn't have died. And so your mother left you for someone else. I mean, there isn't a chance that couldn't make you feel not enough. But the good thing is, as you get older, you realize, you know, my mum had issues. Maybe she had problems, but she couldn't stand my life. You know, I make people say, you know, I left my kid because I thought they were better. Many alcoholics say the same thing. My kid, was better off without me. I was useless. But, you know, that's not for you to say. Your child has no say. I I left my wife and she found someone else and they're better off without me. But that's not true. Every child feels so desperate when they have an absent parent, you know. And the absent parent may be a terrible parent, but at least they have a parent. And so, you know, there are a lot of countries like Sweden and Finland that say, Actually, for most kids, any parent is better than none. That's why they have such a different jail system, because they believe in keeping families together. And it's so hard. You know, I worked with somebody who was, you know, my dad drank and I'd go off to school every day and buy him alcohol and clean up the mess. And one day he killed himself. My first thought, thank God, because I'm 17, I can't do it. But then I felt so much guilt. But then he read the letter from his dad who said, I can't do this to you anymore. It's just not fair. I'm no good to you. You're better off without me. So I've taken my life to free you. But that just left him with more guilt. Why didn't he go to rehab and get better? Why couldn't he be my dad? I was looking after him. He wasn't looking after me. And now I've got to do a lot of work with that poor kid because that guilt, the relief he felt when his father died and the guilt that came later. And, you know, that father passed on so much misery to his son, but he could have 
gone into a program, you know, every alcoholic can stop. It can be a bit of work and pain, but he really should have worked on, you know, when you have a child, your, your obligation is to put that child in front of you. Your obligation as a parent is to grow children with high self-esteem. That's your most important job. And while you're drinking and throwing up, how can you be growing kids with high self Because you're showing them life is so painful the only escape is in a bottle. I did a talk at a school recently uh, in front of uh, two or 300 kids, you know, and uh, it was amazing the amount of children that were coming up to me with their parents that were drinking. They just didn't even know how to begin, how to talk to them. And I could see the pain. They were like 15, 16-year-old kids, you know, uh, and it, it, it's horrible to see because as the alcoholic, you're in your own world. You really are. Uh, so it is so painful but I would love to know more about you before we go because this is a bonus episode uh, and you've been brilliant uh, and I'm sure the listeners will really take a lot from this can you let everyone know who you are because I'm sure they do anyway but what's next for you because you travel all over the world you've worked with celebrities sportsmen we've met once and uh, it's it's just such a privilege for you to be on my podcast. So what's next for you? Well, you know, I was a kid who grew up in a very different world. My father was a headmaster and I came from what looked like a really happy family, but it actually wasn't that happy. There was a lot of drama. My parents were very unsuited. My father was a very typical head teacher, very interested in other people's kids. He was a good man. And I learned to use food very early because when you're a child and you need to change your emotional state, food is really often the only thing. You can't phone a friend or go and buy something on Amazon or take yourself off for a manicure. Can't really do anything except go and raid the biscuit tin or eat lots of toast. So I began to use food to change my emotional state very early on. And I never got fat, but I had a terrible problem with sugar. And then I began to realize as I started trying to not do that. And then I I worked for Pineapple Dance Studios as a head trainer. I worked for Jane Fonda. And I saw something that really concerned me. It's like, wow, this whole diet is based on abuse. Punish the pounds. Do a punishing workout. Live on powdered soups and shakes and these hideous powdered meal replacement bars that taste disgusting. And I thought, gosh, this is amazing. They're making billions out of making people hate themselves. And again, it's not your fault when you become addicted to food because like an alcoholic, you're just trying to change the feelings. So it's been a long time in the making, making 30 years, but I've just created something called Dietless Life. And it's a whole 12-week membership program where you come on board every week for 12 weeks. And I talk to you about the number one reasons diet fail. What happens when you keep dieting? What happens when you buy into it, but every week I'm hypnotizing the whole group to increase their raising, resting metabolic rate, to increase their digestion, to raise their metal, to make them make better choices. And I'm really excited because I've wanted to do this for so long. You know, I started off in the weight loss industry and I feel like I've gone back full circle. I still train my RTT therapist, we're still training our RTT coaches. But I look around at a world where there are more more gyms, more diet foods, more calories on the menu, but there's more fat people. And it's so awful being overweight because people look and go, oh, you're weak. And you're not weak. You just have an addiction that's more visible. And we know now that, you know, sugar is as addictive as cocaine. 
that so many foods we're eating are deliberately made addictive. So I, I've always wanted to help people, to help everyone. So I've created my Dietless Life. It goes live on May the 6th, which is World No Diet Day. I hate diets. They don't work. I spent years on them. I haven't been on a diet for 30 years, and I weigh less now than I ever weighed when I was always dieting. So I'm really excited. You know, as you know, it's another addiction. Food is a hard addiction. You can actually stop drinking, but you can't stop eating. And then you think, oh, I've gone to a wedding or I'm on a plane and there's no nice food and I might as well just eat it. And then you feel this terrible sense of failure. And again, often food addicts are very fragile people who feel so sensitive and so lost. So I can't wait for May the 6th for my new Dietless Life membership. So if you want to join, go to go to Facebook. There's a page called Dietless Life Information Group. You can find out how to join and we'd love to have you. Well, I'm going to put all the information for your RTT, your Give Up Drinking course, and also your new diet thing in the show notes. So all the information will be there. I know you're traveling all over the place. Where are you going next? I'm going to Holland. I'm going to Amsterdam on Sunday to do a new RTT training. So I'm going to Amsterdam. Then I've got two trainings in Rushton in England. And then I'm going to Jordan and North Carolina. Then I'm going to Estonia. But I love what I do. You know, most people don't understand with therapy. It only works if you can change your neural circuits. You know, it's like imagine if you walked down a little, if you walked in the forest and you walked every day, you'd create a path. But if you stop walking, that path would just become overgrown and go back to not being a path. And our neural pathways are the same. Every time we have a habit, drink a glass of wine, we're actually creating a neural pathway, a neural circuit. And the only therapy that really works is something that changes those neural circuits, fires in new ones and dismantles the old ones, which is why I love hypnosis so much. So everywhere I'm going in the next three months is to lecture on hypnosis or teach hypnosis or teach my own method, RTT. And I hope I meet one of them again soon because it's it's such a great life. I'm so lucky I do what I love and I love what I do. And that really comes across and it's the same for me. It's like my whole life has changed since... Uh... Stopping one thing that has dominated my life for 40 years, you know, and I look at things so differently now and I'm a lot more positive and uh, it's clear to see that people who can beat these addictions by the power of the mind, it, it's something we don't always think about. But from the last 40 minutes, I think it's uh, such a strong message there, how you reframe things. Well, you know, the mind is everything. Most people don't quite get it. So imagine that was the ladder. Thoughts come first. There's a thought, and then there's a feeling, and then there's an action, a behavior. And we're so busy trying to change the action or the behavior, but you've got to change the thought. Thought, your thoughts influence your feelings and your actions and your behaviors. And, and stop trying to change your behaviors. That's really hard work. Change the thoughts that run the behavior. And it's easy. And I love the fact that, you know, out of your adversity, you're doing something amazing. You're helping people all over the world understand that you can stop drinking. And it doesn't even have to be painful or awful or long. You know, I think medical professions done something rather unfair. They go, if this is a complex problem like alcoholism or depression, then, then the treatment is also going to be very complex. And that just doesn't have to be true. You can have the most complex issue. 
and get really easy treatment. Not for everybody, but don't buy into that. This is complex. It's going to take a long time to fix because for many people, because how long does it take to change? You can change in the blinking of an eye. If you change a belief, if you change a thought, everything changes. You know, one of my friends said to me, you know, I was drinking, had a little baby, and I caught sight of my face in the mirror, and I was so shocked. I never drank again. I had this beautiful newborn child, and I was drinking and holding her, and I thought, oh, my God, this has to stop. And, he, and another friend said, when I went to get my baby from the hospital, I never smoked again. I looked at this little perfect thing and thought, oh, no, I can't smoke around her. They change like that because they change the thought. And thoughts create your behavior. So work on the behavior, but work on the thought. It's so much easier and it's so much quicker. How wonderful, Marissa. Thank you so much for your incredible wisdom. And I really appreciate you joining me today. Good luck with all your tours and your courses and uh, I hope to see you soon. And if anyone here wants some free audios, go to marissapeer.com. We have audios for love blocks and wealth blocks and health blocks. They're all there. They're, they're no cost. We have ones you buy with a lot of free ones. So if you want to feel better, go to marissapeer.com and take some free downloads or give them to other people. Help everyone feel good about themselves because that's really how you change the world, one person at a time. Exactly. And we are all enough. We are more than enough. Look, all my bracelets say that. I wear these all the time. I'm enough. This one's falling off. I'm enough. And we have lots of these at imenough.com, another website we own. So if you want some free bracelets, go to imenough.com. I'm heading over. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Marissa. It's been a real joy for me. Um, good luck and speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lots of love. Thank you. Bye. 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 I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.